in the middle, right? All right. Um, as you know, we are studying Paul's last words. In his second letter to Timothy, he has some very important things that he needs to say to Timothy before his impending death, right? He's, he's got these really important things he needs to make sure that Timothy knows. Timothy, his child in the faith that he's mentored for many years, and this will be the last time that he has a chance to really convey these important things to him. So he's been reminding him and and instructing him on things throughout this letter. Uh, We have studied that he has reminded him of his calling, which is a holy calling that is to lead to holy living. Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame that gift of God that, that was given to him. He exhorts him not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he must be willing to suffer for this gospel. And then last week we saw that Paul encourages Timothy to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He exhorts him to persevere, to hold fast. And Timothy should remember Christ Jesus, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, and that even he had to walk the way of the cross and taste death. This was all part of God's plan of redemption that was laid down before the foundation of the world. And Paul urges Timothy not to deny Christ in the midst of this suffering, and that it's wholehearted devotion that is the life of a true believer. And he reminds him that God's word is not bound. It's not bound, and nothing can prevail against the very words of God. And finally, he reminds him and us that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And that's a promise that we can stand firm on. And we also want to keep in front of us the overarching theme that we see in these two letters, and that is that Timothy is to guard the good deposit. It is really important that the sound doctrine of the gospel be upheld and preached so that the hearers of the truth can come to true faith in Christ Jesus. So before we get into our text, let's, let's open with prayer. Father, we come before you now, and we just anticipate that you, by your Spirit, will lead us and guide us and teach us. We want to submit ourselves to you and to the words that you've given us so that we can know you, the only true God, and your Son, Jesus, whom you have sent. We do ask you to teach us. Give us minds that are open and hearts that are willing to listen and learn. We also ask that we may be changed by the power of the gospel. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, we're going to start right in our text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading in verse 14. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Okay, as we have read through our passage tonight, I just can't help but notice this back and forth that's going on, this pattern that's in in the text. Um, In his instructions to Timothy, we see both what Timothy is to do and what Timothy is not to do. So I've put these things into two categories that might help us. Um, On this side, I have be diligent, and this side is be warned. So there are things that Timothy needs to be diligent about, and there are things that he needs to be warned about. And it goes back and forth, kind of like a volleyball game, a ball that's going across the net. So I'm going to go back and forth between these two columns, be diligent and be warned. So the first thing we see in our text is that Timothy needs to be diligent. And he needs to be diligent in reminding God's people of these things. These things is all that Paul has been reminding him of so far. This is a command. And it's an ongoing command. So really it would read, Timothy is to keep reminding his people of these things. And the things are all pertaining to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be diligent in keeping the focus on the gospel. Now, they had heard the gospel. Paul had actually been himself in Ephesus for a little over two years, and they had heard him teach and preach as well. They knew the gospel, but Paul needed Timothy to remind them of all the things that they had been taught, and the focus is to remain on the gospel. Now, the next thing we see as our ball volleys over this side of the net is a warning of what not to focus on. And Timothy is to charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Now, the phrase before God speaks to both Timothy and to the people. It reminds Timothy, first of all, of the grave responsibility that he has in leading these people and of his own position before God. God sees Timothy's heart. And as he serves these people, he knows what's in there, and God will enable and empower Timothy to do the work that he needs to do. And Timothy then charges the people before God as well, reminding them that God sees their hearts and that they will be held accountable for their words and their deeds. And Timothy is to keep charging his people not to quarrel about words. 
Now remember that in this culture, people loved words, right? We have talked about this. Paul has been talking about it a lot. And it was a real problem. And I dare say it's a problem in our culture even today. Quarreling does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And we know that quarreling, it isn't even something nice that happens between people, right? That isn't a nice engagement when you're quarreling. And we can get so distracted by endless discussions and conflict over things that don't even have a central importance, things that distract us from the main focus, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the Greek word that is translated ruined in our passage is the Greek word catastrophe. Now, what word do you hear in there? Catastrophe, right? So what he's saying is that it's a disastrous effect. It's a disastrous, disastrous effect of eternal significance. Quarreling over words is catastrophic to the hearers. And that's a warning. So now our ball's going to go back over the net to this side. We see the contrast to the quarreling over the words. Timothy is to be diligent when it comes to his words. Let's look at the text in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. The Greek word for do your best in the ESV actually means to exert oneself or to give diligence. Now, in the King James Version, many of us know that verse in that version, and it starts out, study to show yourself approved. And it's not really the best translation of that word. It's do your best. Give diligence. Now, Paul had earlier reminded Timothy that he was before God, and now he's telling him to present himself to God, and with the call to do his best. And we can see that Timothy... You know, he's not just to rush around in his sermon preparations and slap something together, and hopefully the audience will be happy. But he is to be diligent. He is to work hard. And Timothy's goal is not to get the approval of his people, but to work for God's approval. He wasn't to regard his pastoral role as just a job. It's a call to faithfulness to God. And Paul reminds Timothy also that he's a worker, just like each of us is. Um, the Bible warns us that the work of each Christian will be examined at the judgment seat of Christ. We read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, we all have a motivation to work diligently for the Lord so that we will not be ashamed when our work is examined. One theologian actually said it like this, it is better explained as a workman who has no cause for shame when his work is being inspected. So Timothy is to do his best so that he doesn't have a cause to be ashamed when he is being presented to the Lord. And we note that his work involves words, right? In verse 14, Paul had warned the people not to quarrel about words, but Timothy himself, he needs to do his best to correctly handle God's words. Imagine the gravity of that task. And Paul tells Timothy to rightly handle the word of truth. Another Greek lesson, can't help myself. <laughs> rightly handle in the Greek is the word orthotomeo, which means to make straight. We get our 
words orthopedic from this word, setting bones straight, orthodontic, setting teeth straight, orthotomeo, to make straight. Timothy was to be diligent in how he handled the scriptures. He had to know what they said, what they didn't say. He needed to know how they were to be understood, how they were not to be understood. It wasn't enough for him to just know some Bible stories and some verses and and sprinkle them throughout his sermon as illustrations. His teaching was to be a right handling, a straight exegesis, which is a lifting out of the text, a straight exegesis of the word of God. And Timothy is to do his best with this. There is to be no bending or twisting of the doctrines. So he's to be diligent. Now he's going to go back, our ball's going to go back on this side. And in stark contrast to rightly handling the very words of God, Timothy is warned, verse 16, avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. The NIV reads, avoid godless chatter. Timothy is clearly to avoid this kind of talk. This babble or chatter is devoid of Christian content. It's Godless. And since the Christian faith is so wrapped up tightly with the preaching of the word, because we know in, from Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing um, through the word of Christ, since they're so intertwined, any distortions or challenges to the truth of Scripture will just be unacceptable. And it, and it needs to be rightly handled or else it's going to lead people astray. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul wrote this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So it's really important. Paul warns Timothy that this irreverent babble is only going to lead people further into more ungodliness. And he's to avoid it, right? Avoid. And this is a strong word than how it appears in the English. It's not just a casual, oh, yeah, no thanks. I'll avoid that. It actually means to shun. So Timothy, shun this kind of talk as it's only going to lead to further ruin of your people, and that'll be catastrophic. And what else does Paul say? Their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, gangrene is a condition in which blood flow stops flowing to a specific part of the body, and tissues in that area die. With death of tissue, more blood flow is impeded, more tissue then dies and it spreads fast. Without prompt treatment, gangrene could be fatal, and it is indeed a medical emergency. And Paul describes this godless chatter as spreading like gangrene, and it will be deadly to the life of a congregation if it is allowed to spread. These babblers are deceitful, and they're leading people astray, and Timothy is warned to avoid such people. And Paul isn't just talking in generalizations here. He actually mentions two men who have been spreading their godless chatter. In verse 17, he says, among them, so that tells us that there's more than just these two men, 
Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened, and they are upsetting the faith of some. Excuse me. These men were probably leaders in the church, and they were influential enough to have gained popularity, and their teaching is inhibiting the reception of the true gospel. Now, Philetus isn't mentioned anywhere else in scripture, but scholars believe that Hymenaeus is the same man who Paul mentioned in his first letter to Timothy. In that first letter, Paul had written of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had both made shipwreck of their faith, and Paul had handed them over to Satan so that they could learn not to blaspheme. But it seems that this action by Paul hasn't yet shown fruit in the life of Hymenaeus, because here in this second letter, he's still not aligned with the truth. Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth or even departed from the faith. Now, verse 18 tells us what their irreverent babble or godless chattel was all about. He said that they are saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now, note that they didn't say that there was no resurrection. They're not denying the resurrection of Jesus. That would have been very bold. Um, But this is a subtle distortion, a subtle distortion of the meaning of Christ's resurrection for his followers. They were essentially saying that the resurrection was already past, that what Christ spoke about concerning the resurrection was to be understood mystically or by way of allegory, saying that really it was only a spiritual resurrection and not a bodily resurrection. And another aspect of this teaching was that if your soul was secured in for heaven because the resurrection had already taken place, then you didn't need to be so worried about how you lived your life. Nothing that you do in your body matters. So people could claim to know Jesus as their Savior and then live however they wanted because they had their ticket to heaven. They were twisting the truth, distorting the truth. To say that there is no resurrection for us as believers would really be to instill such a hopelessness, right? If the only thing that we have is what we see and have now, we have nothing to look forward to after this life, no more pain, no more tears, right? No more suffering, then we of all people are most to be pitied. So not only are these two men speaking errors, but their errors are upsetting or even destroying the faith of some. We know that the Greek word used there also means to destroy. Again, the effects are catastrophic. So Timothy needs a perspective here. And Paul gives it to him in verse 19 as our ball goes back over the net. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So Paul reminds Timothy that God has the situation under control, and Timothy must be diligent in his faith to trust that the false beliefs and the unbelief of men cannot stop the work of God. The foundation of God stands firm, and the foundation that he's talking about here is the church. And the church was founded by Christ himself, right? Nothing can shake it. It is firm. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had a conversation with his disciples. He had asked them who he was or who did men say that he was. 
And then he asked them specifically, who do you say that I am? And Peter responded, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, it wasn't that Jesus was building on Peter as a pope, as an authority figure on earth, but as on the foundation of the apostles who were to write the New Testament scriptures. The church is built on the foundation of the word of God. And this firm foundation bears two seals. And we know that seals show ownership, right? So the first one, the Lord knows those who are his. The second one, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, both of these seals are grounded in scripture. The first one, the Lord knows those who are his, is reminiscent of the story in Numbers 16 of Korah's rebellion. Now, Korah and two men actually staged a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and of course, ultimately against God. And because of this rebellion, God would pour out his wrath on them for their sin, though they arrogantly thought that they were in the right. And in response to them, Moses had said, you come out in the morning and the Lord will show who is his. The Lord will show who is his and the Lord did show who is his. You'll have to read that story in number 16 sometime this week. <clears throat> this first seal is also reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22. He said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Yes, indeed, the Lord knows those who are his. So the ball's going to volley back on this side as we read the second seal. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Timothy and his people are to be warned about how they live. The false teachers, you remember, were teaching that since your soul was secured for heaven, that you didn't need to be so concerned about how you lived. Nothing that they did in, in the body mattered. So people could claim to know Jesus, have their ticket to heaven, and yet their lives could be steeped in sin. Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians, and in that letter, he addresses two main issues. He addresses incest in chapter 5 and prostitution in chapter 6. And scholars believe that it was because of this false teaching that led many in the church, in that Corinthian church, to become involved in these obvious sins. And Paul needed to address that. False teaching. Living however you want because you know you're going to heaven. But what did Christ teach? In John chapter 8, we read of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And the Pharisees dragged her out into the public, and they brought her to Jesus to see if he would condemn her according to the law of Moses. Jesus responded by saying to them, to the religious leaders, that whoever was without sin could throw that first stone at her. And one by one, they all walked away leaving no one to condemn her. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? 
He said, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Depart from iniquity. That's what Jesus teaches. Holy living is a characteristic of a Christ follower, not living in sin. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And the apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, let us not think that this means that Christians never sin. Right? What it does mean is that we are aware of our sin and we are continually examining our hearts and coming before him to confess our sin because you know what? He is faithful and just and will forgive our sin. And repentance is a turning away from sin and that is characteristic of a true believer. So be warned. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's read on as the ball volleys back. Verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if... Anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Now, this is an illustration from everyday life. Paul has done this before, and it speaks actually to what Paul was just talking about, departing from iniquity, separating ourselves from sin. In a great house, perhaps the home of a wealthy man, there were vessels of gold and silver that were used for special occasions. So we might think of a china cabinet, um, a place where we keep that special uh, fine china safe until we want to set a table for a special occasion. Now the gold and the silver were tableware, that's tableware that is used to serve food. And then there were the vessels that were used for garbage and for waste. Now, you don't take the garbage out in a golden bowl, right? That's what the vessels of wood and clay were used for, to taking out the trash, the garbage, the waste. So Paul is likening these honorable versus dishonorable vessels to the person who is either living a clean life, one who purposes himself to obedience, versus the one who is living in a manner dishonorable to God and to his word. But what does Paul say? If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, or if anyone separates himself from ongoing sin in his or her life, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. 
And God's church is indeed a great house. And this is what Paul is talking about. Each one, each one of us needs to cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable so that we can be useful to the master in the work of the kingdom. And do you recall at the end of this letter what Paul says about Mark? At the very end of chapter, near the end of the letter in chapter 6, he writes, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in the ministry. Now, you might not remember, but Mark at one time had walked away from ministry. He had abandoned Paul uh, in the ministry. He quit. He walked away. And now what does Paul say? Paul knows that there's been a change in Timothy. There's gospel transformation that has happened. And now Mark is useful. And how about um, what Paul wrote in his letter to Philemon about Onesimus? Onesimus being the slave that had run away from his master. And then when he had met Paul and he had come to faith in Christ. And Paul wrote a letter to Philemon appealing on behalf of Onesimus. And he said this, Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Gospel, gospel transformation is evident in the life of Onesimus. And this involves repentance, a turning away from sin, a separating from sin, because then we can be used in the work that God has prepared us to do. But how would we do this, right? What would it look like? Well, let's read on, <clears throat> picking up in verse 22. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So Paul's instructions in this section really are twofold. He is to both flee, right? He's fleeing and he's pursuing. So he's to pull back from certain things and he's to run after other things. So we have instructions in both of our categories in this section. Timothy is to be warned, and he is to be diligent. So let's do the warnings first. <clears throat> first, he is to flee youthful passions. The command is simple, but the warning is really strong. Youthful passions describe the sort of desires and temptations that are especially prominent in someone when someone is an adolescent or a young adult. But if these things are allowed to continue... As one gets older, the harder they are to pull away from. So Paul is warning Timothy to take all possible care to get away from such behaviors. He is to live a life that is clean. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul wrote this, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Flee youthful passions. Secondly, Timothy is warned to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, as we know that they breed quarrels. And we know that these quarrels, right, lead to no good and ruins the hearers. That's that catastrophic effect. 
Clean living also means staying clear of endless disputes and arguments because these distracting interests can really limit us in kingdom work. Thirdly, Timothy is warned not to be quarrelsome himself. As the pastor of this church in Ephesus, Timothy is not to lead with a quarrelsome spirit because people are not drawn to the gospel by those who are argumentative. So in contrast to these warnings, Timothy is also to be diligent. So let's go over here. Diligent in pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Timothy and his people, and us as well, are only going to do this by walking in the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, Paul wrote, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Walking by the Spirit. This is a purposeful action, right? Fleeing was purposeful. Pursuing is purposeful as well. Those things aren't going to happen by accident. We have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And we're not to do this all alone either. Paul makes special, special mention of pursuing godliness along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And a pure heart can also uh, be translated a clean conscience. And we know that Paul has spoke of a clean conscience before in relation to his own position in Christ and speaking about being forgiven from the sins in his past and present and being made new just like each of us are made new when we come to know him. And then Timothy is to be diligent in displaying an attitude of kindness and gentleness and patience. This kind of reminded me of the fruit of the Spirit that we read about in Galatians chapter 5. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He's walking with the Spirit. And Timothy is to be diligent in teaching his people. He needs to be able to teach. And Paul spoke of this when he instructed him regarding rightly handling the word of truth. He needs to be knowledgeable in the scriptures, ready to give an answer for the hope that is in him. And finally, Timothy is to be diligent in correcting those who oppose the gospel. Paul spoke about this, especially in his first letter to Timothy, about the importance of confronting the false teachers and to keep the doctrine pure and unstained. We read also that the Lord's servant is to patiently endure evil. Paul knows that Timothy is seldom going to be free from opposition. Being maligned and reviled can in fact be a sign that one is squarely in the center Of God's service. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Times were turbulent in Paul and Timothy's day, and they're turbulent in our day too, aren't they? There will be opposition, and Paul instructs Timothy to be diligent to handle that opposition with wisdom and gentleness. And why? 
because according to our pickup in the end of 25, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. We've already learned about uh, knowledge. This knowledge that he talks about is a full or a thorough knowledge. It's not just being familiar with it. It's a full, thorough knowing. And we also learned that the Jews, they had knowledge, they had zeal for God, but they lacked knowledge of the truth. And you know, the same thing is true inside the church, both then and today, especially for those of us who grew up in the church. Sometimes we have knowledge, right? We have a lot of information in our heads. We know the language. We know how to talk like a Christian. But sometimes we can lack that full and thorough knowledge of the truth. And Paul reminds us that it is God who gives repentance. He grants repentance, which leads to that knowledge of the truth. Because we will never come to that awareness on our own. And when Timothy is facing those who are in opposition to the truth, he needs to know how to answer them in patience and in gentleness because perhaps God will grant repentance. Now, we want to be careful here. The idea is not, well, maybe God will, maybe God won't. It's more, the idea is more that it's a remarkable thing to see this work of God, but I won't presume that it will happen. And Paul may be thinking right here about Hymenaeus and Philetus, right? It would indeed be a work of God if they and those that we know in our lives should come to a place of repentance. And may it be so. May it be so. We do not despair that someone is hopelessly lost. We continually love and we speak truth. And we are an example, and we pray, oh, we earnestly pray, that God will grant repentance and lead that person to the truth. And we pray that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, we read this, In their case, the God of this world, that is Satan, he has blinded the minds of of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But Jesus said, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. That phrase, come to their senses, speaks to someone waking up, waking up and realizing that they are ensnared by the devil. If God doesn't grant repentance, hearts will continue in rebellion towards him. Earlier I mentioned the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Her sin, though initially private, was made public. Her guilt was clear. The law of Moses said she must die. She must be stoned. Imagine a bit of the story with me. <clears throat> the men that burst into that house, they're full of spite for this woman. She is a despicable sinner in their view. 
They drag her, probably half naked and in shame, to the square where people, a lot of people, are sitting and listening to the teacher. They push her through the crowd and they place her, stand her right before Jesus. You see, they're out to test Jesus. They are looking for a charge to hold against him, and they want to see if he's going to uphold the law of Moses. What do you say, teacher? Is she guilty? But Jesus didn't say anything, and he bent down, and he wrote something in the dirt with his finger. What he wrote is not known to us. The Bible doesn't tell us. And the men kept asking him, What do you say, Jesus? Should she die? And then he stood up and he said to them, Let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, they dropped their stones and they walked away. And Jesus was then left alone with the woman standing before him. Well, where are your accusers, woman? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I would love to imagine that this woman returned home with her eyes now wide open. I mean, her life had been spared, right? And Jesus had not condemned her, even though the charge against her was right. Did she cleanse herself from what was dishonorable and become useful to the master? Was she then set apart for good works that he had prepared for her? We don't know that. We're not told. But that scene just had to have been life-altering, don't you think? In John 3, verse 17, Jesus said this, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. But how did the Son of God save the world? Beginning in John chapter 18, we read about a betrayal, the betrayal, and arrest of the only innocent and perfect human being that ever lived. He was dragged in front of a court of religious leaders, the same ones who couldn't even throw a stone at a condemned woman because of their own sin. He was wrongly charged, he was wrongly convicted. He was beat upon and spit upon. He was condemned to die, and not for his own sin. He he had no sin. He was innocent. He was led outside the city to his own death, and he was nailed to a cross in nakedness and shame. He suffered a cruel death. Yet he was innocent. He was not guilty. But the Bible tells us that Jesus laid down his life. He laid it down. No one took it from him. That's a very important point. It wasn't taken from him. He laid it down. And this was the plan, you see. God's plan for the redemption of his own people. For the elect, Christ died. He bore our sins in his body on that cross to free us from the wrath that was to come by bearing the wrath of God himself. And before he took his last breath, he cried out, it is finished. The work was done. It was complete. The power of sin and death was broken. 
No more condemnation comes to the one who is in Christ Jesus. But how do we come to be in him? We come by faith. We come by faith, believing what the Bible says about Christ Jesus, that he is indeed the Son of God, who came not to condemn but to save. We believe by faith that his willing sacrifice on the cross was enough, that no more is needed. Our sin is covered by his blood. We respond to the drawing of our hearts to the Savior who gave his life so that we could live. We come humbly, we come broken in our nakedness and our shame, and we confess that we have sinned, that we are sinners, and without any hope of salvation on our own. Without Jesus, we are lost, and we would be forever lost without him. But if we trust in him to be our savior, then we are forgiven. We are granted knowledge of the truth. We are given eternal life and will be face to face with God one day. And this, this is the gospel. This is the gospel that we need to stay focused on. This is the gospel that we need to keep reminding ourselves of and reminding each other of. And and it's why we need to stay focused. We need to avoid the distractions that come from too many words and quarrels and controversies. We need to study the word of truth to know what it says. And we need to separate ourselves from sin and flee the desires of the flesh and pursue Christ. We need to wake up and examine ourselves often so we don't become ensnared by the world or the flesh or the devil. This is what we cling to. And it's not because doing these things is going to save us, because it won't. That isn't what saves us. No, we do these things in gratitude and in obedience to the one who has called us out of our darkness into his marvelous light. Because, ladies, times are tough and they're turbulent, and we are going to need to stand firm. And it is only through the power of the gospel that we're going to be able to do so. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we need you. You have entrusted this glorious gospel to us. You are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And you do not treat us as our sins deserve. But you have removed our transgressions far from us through the blood of your Son, whom you sent to save us. If anyone hearing this, Lord, doesn't know you, I pray with all earnestness that you would grant repentance and open eyes and lead to a knowledge of the truth, who is Jesus himself. For those of us who do know us, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts, draw us nearer, May we depend on you every step of the way, walk by the Spirit, and transform us, Lord, continually into the image of your Son. In this I pray, amen.